I have been blessed with a very wise wife, and my children are blessed with a very wise mother. My wife has this little phrase, Trisha has this little phrase that she uses every now and then. Every now and then I get worked up about something. You know, yeah, it's not, yeah, I'm usually calm. But every now and then something gets me worked up, something gets me out of sorts, and I'll see something online and just kind of makes me burn a little bit, and, and I want to comment, I want to say something, I want to do something. And Trish has this phrase that she throws at me in those moments. She says, you've got to pick your battles. And then she says, is this a hill you want to die on? And I think, no, probably not. And you know, the reality is, we realize that that a lot of the things that get us worked up, they are designed to get a reaction out of us. You see, you realize that online and on TV especially. You will see things that just make your blood boil. They'll hear things and you'll want to respond to them because all they really care about is that you click on something. They want you to click. And even if you have a negative response, you've responded and your friends know that you've responded and suddenly uh, their cause is getting more and more attention. Most of the things that get us worked up are not worth the attention. They're not worth the time. They're not worth the battle. And the problem for us, I believe, as Christians, as believers, is that if everything is worth a battle, if everything is worth us getting worked up, what happens when suddenly it's an important issue? What happens when it's something that really is truly worth the battle? Are we going to recognize those times? Are we going to be able to hold and stand on those issues. We're looking at Acts chapter 4 today. We're going to take in most of the chapter as we kind of make our way through it, walk our way through Acts chapter 4. Last week we were in Acts chapter 3, and in Acts chapter 3, Peter and John are on their way to the temple, and they heal a disabled man who's begging out in front of the temple. And the crowd responds to this. People see this happen. And in verse 10 of Acts chapter 3, it says that the crowd recognized him as the one who sat at the beautiful gate of the temple asking for alms. And they were filled with wonder and amazement about what happened to him. And so the rest of Acts chapter 3 is Peter preaching about the power of Jesus, not only to heal this man, but the power of Jesus to change their lives and telling them who Jesus is. Uh, If you continue on in verse 13, Peter says, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, the God of our fathers glorified his servant Jesus, whom you (laughs) delivered over and denied in the presence of Pilate when he had decided to release him. But you denied the holy and righteous one and asked for a murderer to be granted to you. And you killed the author of life whom God raised from the dead. To this we are witnesses. Now it may surprise you to find that this message of Peter accusing them of killing God's messenger, this message was not received well. People took offense to that. People got worked up over it. And the rest of chapter 4, or all of chapter 4, is the story of Peter and John on trial before the Jewish high council, the the Jewish rulers. And I want to remind you, in chapter 4, they are on trial before the very same people who two months earlier had had Jesus arrested, two months earlier had had Jesus on trial, had convicted him and sentenced him to death. 
What do Peter and John think is going to happen to them? We begin chapter 4. I want to begin with just the first 12 verses. As they, that is Peter and John, as they were speaking to the people, the priests and the captains of the temple and the Sadducees came upon them greatly annoyed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. And they arrested them and put them in custody until the next day because it was already evening. But many of those who heard the word believed and the number of men came to about 5,000. On the next day, their rulers and elders and scribes gathered together in Jerusalem with Annas the high priest and Caiaphas and John and Alexander and all who were in the high priestly family. And after they had set them in their midst, they inquired, by what power and by what name do you do this? And then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to, said to them, rulers of the people and elders, if we are being examined today concerning the good deed done to a crippled man, by what means this man has been healed, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you well. This Jesus is he, just Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And, and, and here verse 12, and there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. And someone could have asked Peter at that moment, is that a hill worth dying on? And Peter would say, absolutely. That is a hill that is not only worth dying on, that is a hill worth standing on. Verse 12, there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. That is the heart of the gospel message, the message of salvation that is found in no one else but Jesus Christ. This is a hill to stand on. But if we're going to stand on this hill, we have to stand on it together. When we stand on the message of Jesus, we stand as one. And as we see Peter and John's example through chapter 4, we see how we stand as one, how we hold to that message together. There is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. That is our message. That's the message of the church. That's the message of our faith. And if we are to stand on that message, then we will stand by our character. Peter declares to those who are, who are judging him, he declares something they've never heard before. He declares the uniqueness of Jesus Christ, the centrality of Jesus to the message of the gospel, the, the message of hope, the message of salvation. And then you read the response. You read the response of those rulers, of those judges, those who were judging him. Verse 13 now, when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated common men, they were astonished. And they recognized that they had been with Jesus. But seeing the man who was healed standing beside them, standing beside them, get that, they had nothing to say in opposition. But when they commanded them to leave the council, they conferred with one another, saying, What shall we do with these men? For that a notable sign has been performed through them is evident to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and we cannot deny it. But in order that it may spread no further among the people, let us warn them to speak no more to anyone in this name. 
I love those words in verse 13. When they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated common men, they were astonished and they recognized that they had been with Jesus. I think that is so important to who we are as Christians, who we are as a, as a church. What was it that impressed them about Peter and John? It wasn't that they were educated. It wasn't that they were great speakers. In fact, there might be something in that statement in verse 13 that's a comment on their accent. They were from Galilee. They, they talked like hillbillies because they were from Galilee. And they obviously didn't know what they were talking about. But the difference was they had been with Jesus. Whether people accept our message or not, there should be no question of them that there's something different about us because we have been with Jesus. So yesterday was graduation day at Lincoln Christian University. Finally, after a year and a half of waiting, after enduring a, a year of COVID and disappointment after disappointment as graduations were canceled, we finally got graduated. We finally got to go and walk all of us who, were gra who graduated were wearing our robes. We had our black robes and our mortarboards on. And you know, the best thing about that is it's a little bit chilly and that black robe just kind of absorbed all the heat. And I was nice and toasty. I don't know about everybody else, but I was nice and toasty inside my robe. Should have put like a solar panel on top of that hat. That would have made, that would have worked really, really well, I think. All of us in, who were graduating were wearing our robes, our mortarboards and, our, and, uh, and had our tassels. But you know, as I watched, as I saw that big sea of all those robes, I couldn't help but notice there were differences in some of those robes. Those undergrad kids who had done really well, they had, they had the, the gold cords because they had gotten high honors, and so they were wearing gold cords. I never got to wear gold cords, by the way. I, I didn't get gold cords. They had worked really hard, and I looked at those cords, and I said, boy, they put a lot of time in. They put their nose to the grindstone. They got the grades. They had to sacrifice a lot of fun times that I didn't sacrifice as an undergrad, so that they could get to wear those tassels. And then I, I looked at the other ones. I saw, I saw us master's students, and we get these hoods, and it's a, this piece of material that flows down the back. Those of you who've worked at cap and gown, you probably made those, you know? We had, those, we had the, the hoods that flow down the back, and so we're getting our hoods, and those look real impressive because you realize you've worked an awful lot for that. And then I saw the two doctoral students who were there and they've got these stripes on their sleeves and they've got gold tassels where the rest of us had black tassels and theirs are gold. And so there are all these differences. And I would be lying to you if I said I wasn't impressed because I was very impressed because I saw all of those robes and I thought to myself, that took a lot of time getting, the, getting that degree. You had to put a lot of time behind that. I looked at this one over here and go, oh my goodness, that, that must have taken some sacrificing from you and your family to get this master's degree so you could do that. And I looked at those doctoral students and I said, that, that took money. Uh, <laughs> that took a lot of money to get that. It took a lot of, you know, because they've had to have gone through everything else to finally arrive and get that doctoral degree. But there's something that Lincoln Christian University does that I just absolutely love. Uh, the students who are getting their Masters of Divinity, that's a tough degree, 72 hours. It's, equi it's the equivalent of two Masters degrees, really. Those who get their, their MDivs, not only do they get the, the hood, they also get a towel because they're reminded that there is no higher calling than to be a servant. And Jesus showed us that the greatest thing we can do is to wash one another's feet. And so through his example of washing his disciples' feet, those students get towels. And they were walking back with their towels. Those who get the doctorates, well, they finally get the bowls. 
so they can actually use the towels. They get bowls, these big, beautiful wooden bowls that are made for them, and, and they, uh, they get the bowls. But Lincoln doesn't want, Lincoln Christian University does not want its graduates and those that see their graduates to forget that the highest calling is to be a servant. The highest calling is the evidence that you have been with Jesus. Peter declares the message of Jesus. Verse 8 tells us that he was filled with the Holy Spirit. Verse 13 says that he spoke with boldness. But what mattered most was his character. He had been with Jesus. There are always going to be people who argue about our message. They've been around. They were there in chapter 4. There are always going to be people who argue about our message. But I hope, I hope they can never argue with our character. I hope they always see that there is a difference in us and that the, the, we stand on the truth that we are different because we have spent time with Jesus. We stand by our character. Peter's boldness before the council also shows us that we stand on our commitment. So the ruling council here, Peter and John, they are impressed with their character. They say, basically they say, we can't do anything about their character. Their character stands. This is who they are. And so they order them to stop speaking. Verse 18. So they called them and charged them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. Stop talking about this guy that we killed two months ago who came back to life and we can't do anything about it. Stop talking about him. You're making us look bad. That's, that's essentially what they're telling them. And then you hear Peter and John's response. Verse 19. Peter and John answered them, whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than God, you must judge for we cannot but speak about what we have seen and heard. And when they had further threatened them, they let them go, finding no way to punish them because of the people who were all praising God for what had happened for the man of whom this sign of healing was performed was more than 40 years old. Our message about Jesus, that there is no other name given by which we can be saved, that message calls for a commitment. If you believe that message, you cannot stand on anything else. Nothing else can stand above it. You cannot stand for anything else. And I think we need that reminder because sometimes we get distracted. Sometimes we let other things get distracted. And when you and I get distracted with other issues, when we allow other agendas to set the tone of who we are and what we believe and what we stand on, the message of Jesus gets diluted and gets confused with other messages. And so I hear about millennials, young people today who are leaving the church in droves. And when millennials are asked what they think of Christians, they say, uh, we don't like them. And when they're asked, why don't you like Christians? Their response is, I don't like the way they vote. When did the way we vote become our message? When did we stop standing on the message of Jesus? When I have to wonder, why is the first thing they think of about us politics instead of those people have been with Jesus? When we allow ourselves to get distracted, we dilute the message of Jesus. We reduce the hope that we have to offer the world to just another cause to get behind, to just another cause that we want people to rally with. And so a couple months ago, a friend of mine calls me up and he was pretty worked up about something that was happening in his area. He's a preacher. He's pretty worked up about something that was happening politically in his area. And he said, you know what? I'm going to preach a sermon about this. I'm going to preach a sermon about this. 
I'm going to write an article about this. I'm going to get I'm going to get an article in the newspaper about this. And he's all worked up and telling me all about it. And then I asked him a question. I said to my friend, you know, you've got to pick your battles. Is this a hill worth dying on? And he stopped and he said, that's a really good question. And I said, I know. I just thought of it myself. He, he doesn't have to know where I heard it. <laughs> he thanked me. If we're going to stand on the message of Jesus, it has to stand above everything else that we are. It has to stand above everything else. We have to be known for our commitment to him first. And that's an important reminder for us that as we, that we stand on the message of Christ alone. And thankfully, thankfully, while we stand on the message of Christ alone, we don't stand on the message alone. We stand together. And as chapter 4 comes to a close, it's not just about Peter and John. It's about the whole church. It's a reminder that we stand with our community. You know, Acts 4 is crucial, not just because of how it spells out the message of Jesus Christ, that there is no other name under heaven given to men by which they must be saved. It is, a, it is crucial because you realize that for those early Jewish believers, those early Jewish followers of Jesus, chapter 4 means their world has just changed. The Jewish ruling council has just told them they're not allowed to speak about Jesus anymore. That's their family. That's their friends. That is their community. And suddenly now they are out. They're on the outs with them. Who's going to care for them? Who's going to take care of the elderly members of that community? Because their families aren't going to take care of them anymore. Where are their needs going to be met? And so as we come to the end of the chapter, we see how they stood together as a community. Verses, verses 23 through uh, 31, they, they pray together. They gather together and pray. And then in response, after that prayer, we read this from verses 32 through 37. Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul. And no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. And with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony. Remember, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. With great power, they were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And great grace was upon them all. There was not a needy person among them. For as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as any had need. And thus Joseph, who was also called by the apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, Joseph, a Levite, a native of Cyprus, sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. It's very important for you and I to realize something about this passage. And that is that there is not a single command in that passage at all. There's not a commandment. There is nothing in this passage that says, if you are a Christian, thou shalt sell your property and give it to the poor. It, it doesn't say that. Peter did not stand up among the, uh, among the church, among the believers there. Peter did not stand up and say, from each according to his ability, to each according to his need. That was not the message that day. There's not a command here that I can tell you you must go and do. There is not a matter of obedience. These are not requirements of church membership. 
Instead, what we have here is the natural and maybe definitely supernatural response of a caring community. This is what happens when you have nowhere else to go. And this is what happens when you go to a group of people who love Jesus and who worship Him. Again, verse 32, Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul, and no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but that they had everything in common. Do you remember when Jesus was asked, what is the greatest commandment? And do you remember what he said? He quoted from Deuteronomy chapter 6, Love the Lord your God with all of your heart and soul and with all of your strength. What did verse 32 just say? The full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul. And what did Jesus say? Jesus said, and this is the second commandment. The second commandment is like it. And the second commandment was? Yeah, love your neighbor as yourself. Verse 32 says they were of one heart and soul. And what did they do? They loved their neighbors. They came together and they loved their neighbors because they loved Jesus together. Everything they had was shared. They stood together as a community. The rulers tried to take the message of Jesus away from them. Verse 18, so they called them and charged them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. Every now and then we get worried that someone's going to try to take our message away from us. And we look around our world and we see there are places where that happens. There are places where that's happening. It's horrible. It's devastating. It's awful. But what they can't take away is the way we care for each other. They can't take the way, take away the way we love each other. When we stand on the message of Jesus, we stand as one. And the question isn't, is this a hill you want to die on? The question is, is this a hill you're willing to live on and to live together on? The promise of salvation through the name of Jesus is the greatest promise that we know, but we don't know it just by ourselves. We know it together. Our character, our commitment, and our community, these are linked, and these together declare the truth of who Jesus is. And when our friends and our neighbors see these qualities in us, they will know it too. And I pray they know him as well. I'm going to sing a song here in just a moment. Donna tells me it's a song we haven't sung in a long time, but we remember it very well. That it's a song that reminds us of the, the message of the gospel. There is no other name under heaven given to us by which we may be saved. And so as we sing together this morning, we sing that Jesus saves. I'm going to pray, and then we'll sing, and then following our, our song, we'll take the Lord's Supper together. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the gift of your Son, a gift that we remember today as we take communion together. We remember his body broken. We remember his blood shed. But Father, we take that into ourselves and we take that together now as a reminder that it's not a message for us just as individuals. It's a message that we share. It's a message that we stand on. It is a message that we would die for. And Father, as we share this as one, it's a reminder that one of the greatest ways that the truth of who Jesus is is seen is in the way we care for each other, the way we stand together as a community.
and the way, the way our character reflects that of your son. Bless us as we take today. Bless us as we take the bread that represents his body and the cup that represents his blood and remind us today uh, of how important it is for each of us to be known for having been with your son. It's in his name we pray. Amen.